Bennett. I'm John Bailey, and on this week's episode, I review the latest Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie, Out of the Shadows, the musical mockumentary by Judd Apatow and the Lonely Island, pop star, Never Stop, Never Stopping, and the romantic drama about a woman and a quadriplegic man, Me Before You. Let's get started. As a kid of the 90s, I grew up on Ninja Turtles. Ninja Turtles was my thing. Me and my brother shared it back when the cartoon was going on TV. We had the toys, we played the games, we were all about the Turtles growing up. So when Michael Bay basically gave his Transformers take on the new Ninja Turtles, I didn't hate it the same way I hate the Transformers movies, even though I wasn't a fan of the original Transformers. But it definitely wasn't the right fit for me. It tried to be nostalgic, but it was also trying to be super realistic and modern, and the writing definitely wasn't there. So for the sequel, they've amped up the nostalgia, but kept all the same old parts. It's like putting a nice, shiny new coat of paint on the same broken piece of crap car. Anyway, this time around... The turtles are still living in the shadows because they're ninjas, they're supposed to, but they dream of being able to live out in the open because they're teenagers and they want more out of life, essentially. While that's going on, Shredder is being moved to a more secure facility along with two other criminals, Bebop and Rocksteady. And the Foot Clan, under the watchful eye of Baxter Stockman, manages to break Shredder Shree and allows for Bebop and Rocksteady to get away. After his release, it's revealed by April, who hacked into Baxter Stockman's emails, that he's working with the Foot Clan on something big with the Shredder. And Shredder's escape through a dimensional portal runs him into Krang, the uh, alien brain goo monster who lives inside of a giant robot in the stomach. And Krang gives Shredder the ability to fight against the Turtles so that he can open a portal to bring in the Terror Drone. And so, once he gets back to the Foot Clan, Shredder recruits Bebop and Rocksteady and mutates them into their rhinoceros and warthog cells in order to help him assemble the parts to an interdimensional portal to bring in the Terror Drone and Krang. Meanwhile, the Turtles are kind of bickering amongst themselves, most of them sick of living in the sewer, and Leonardo trying to keep them as they are, keep the status quo and running into issues when they discover this purple goo can mutate them. They manage to get over this, and along with Casey Jones, a former security guard who transported Bebop and Rocksteady and Shredder in the opening of the movie, they work to finally bring down the Shredder and stop Krang's Drome from entering Earth's atmosphere, and along the way get a little acceptance from the New York police. So, it's definitely rooted in the nostalgia of the 90s cartoon. I mean... Bebop and Rocksteady, I don't remember them from anything else but that 90s cartoon. You got Krang and the Terror Drone, Casey Jones. This really is just kind of slapping over nostalgia paint over the last movie because it's all the same issues. Bad writing and weak acting and very childish humor. It's not what I remember of the Turtles, but then, I mean, that 80s, 90s cartoon was very hokey for its time, so... 
maybe it's just a thing that I now I'm an adult and that's and if I went back that, that I'd find similar issues with the cartoon. I do think the cartoon tried a little harder than to just because I mean this movie does base a lot of humor on body stuff the same way that Angry Birds did. It's like the easiest way to make kids laugh is fart jokes and like really dumb slapstick. It's as though it's not, it's as though they didn't want to try and be too clever. And I feel like that's the issue when you're not trying to be better then you, and you just rely on sort of the baseline, you end up with crap like Transformers and, and this iteration of TMNT and stuff like Angry Birds. And I feel like in a time when we've also been able to make the Lego movie, which is crazy, clever, and subversive, people should really up their game. I mean, if you're going to do something, why not do it to the best of your abilities? I guess that's my issue. I will say I probably enjoyed this more just out of nostalgia because Gary Anthony Williams, who's been a comedic actor that I've known, he he was a actor on the Blue Collar Comedy TV show. There was a short-lived like sketch show featuring the blue featuring the Blue Collar Comedy guys, uh, mainly Jeff Foxworthy, Bill Engvall, and Larry the Cable Guy, and Gary Anthony Williams was one of the actors in their troupe, but. Gary Anthony Williams is one of those guys who is a character actor for the most part, and he gets appearances in different comedies depending on who's casting. And I feel like he never really gets his due. And here, he really has a lot of fun. He is probably the most memorable character. Like, he gets a lot of... He plays Bebop, and even before the transformation he gets to have a lot of fun in the purple mohawk and the sunglasses and i feel like he, this was a blast for him and you could really see that in the performance brad garrett plays krang in this version where they kind of switch up the very skeletor high-pitched voice for krang where it's like and they switch that out for brad garrett's very low voice Although it's the same essential performance, it's just essentially they pitched it down like two octaves. Other than that, yeah, it's the same movie as the last one. Depending on how you felt about the last Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movies, this is more the same with a nice coat of nostalgia paint. Um, I think it's the guy from Arrow playing Casey Jones, and he's not terrible, but he's not. All, he's also not given a lot to do. I mean, other than the Turtles, Megan Fox is just there for eye candy. Will Arnett gets some weak jokes. He's not exactly, you know, he doesn't exactly get to shine as a comedian like he usually does. And Casey Jones is kind of annoying, but at the same time, this is all in the writing. That's all in the writing, and the actors are given the performances that I'm guessing they're directed to give if there is any direction for acting. So we're essentially, the actors are feel like they're on their own, and left to interpret the character themselves because I feel like the director is one of those guys that's just like, you know, clock in, clock out, like a yeoman director, so to speak. You know, just a working guy. You know, he just wants to get the film done and he's not an auteur, as it were. He's the working director. And I feel like that's a, that's a lot, there's a lot of that going around. So if you're a fan of that last Turtles movie... 
then have fun at this one. I honestly think the TV shows have been able to do it better, but that's just me. Are you okay? I've been in this situation before. I think I got these scars from wolves. Now let's get out of here. Oh, we oh killed Seal. He's dead. He's dead. Seal is dead. Mona Lisa sucks. Like many people, I'm a fan of Lonely Island, so it's nice to be able to see them make their own movie, with Judd Apatow no less. Here we have Andy Sandberg starring in essentially a parody of the Justin Bieber documentary, the concert documentary that he did, Never Stop, Never Stop something or another, Don't Stop Believing, whatever he called his stupid movie back in like 2012. And this is, it's a bit late. Honestly, this probably would have been better like three years ago, maybe three or four years ago. But at the same time, it's still relevant to today's pop music. It's a very cliched story of a set of a Beastie Boys style early 90s rap group called the Style Boys starring the guys from Lonely Island, Andy Samberg, Yorma Tacone, and Akiva Schaff. And it's Andy Samberg as the lead vocalist, Akiva is the writer, and Yorma is the composer, beat, got beat maker, that kind of thing. He's the, he's the musician behind it. And I don't know if that's the setup for the actual group, but that's the setup they have for the Style Boys. And Andy Samberg gets all of the attention because he's the, he's the Justin Timberlake, so to speak, of the Style Boys. And so he eventually goes solo as Connor... He plays Connor Freer, Freel, I think, is his character's name. But he goes by Kid Connor when they're in the Style Boys because they do the kid thing. It's, kid, it's Sandberg as Kid Connor, at, who was the leader. Connor's his name. Yorma is Kid Contact, and then Akiva plays Kid Brain because he's the he's the lyrical he's the he's the lyricist he's the brains of the group. And Akiva's character feels like Connor's getting all the credit when he's doing all the work, and so he breaks up the group, and then Connor goes solo as Connor, the number four real. And it's all about that sort of modern day pop star mentality of like mansions and parties and you know f flagrant opulence and ignorance and it's a lot of i mean i've been hearing it called this generation spinal tap or the modern music version for spinal tap and it definitely gets the commentary on pop music the way that spinal tap did for live music and performing but i feel like this was a lot more fun and a lot less insightful than Spinal Tap was. Spinal Tap was this brilliantly concocted storyline of this band traveling, and it got a lot of live music down to a T to the point where there were musicians who were watching this going like, that's my life. And I feel like what the Lonely Island guys were doing was just having fun at the expense of guys like Bieber and Timberlake, who does make an appearance in the movie, and people who are, you know, rich and successful pop musicians. There is a storyline about how, because we're kind of following Connor as he's going down, because he's risen to the top and he's about to release a new album, and he just, and then it just all kind of spirals downward while 
his headliner that they bring on, played by relative newcomer Chris Red. I, I haven't heard of him before. He doesn't have his own Wikipedia page yet. He mostly has short appearances in TV shows up to this point. Like, he appears in a couple episodes of Empire, Greetings from Prison, he's in an episode, Chicago PD, Lonely and Horny, not sure what network's airing that one, but in this move, this, so this is kind of like his real breakout role in terms of film, and here he's playing a sort of, who'd be the best comparison? I guess maybe like a Tyler the Creator or Kendrick Lamar, like an up-and-coming rap, maybe maybe not them because they're usually a bit more heady, but Chris Red plays the character Hunter the Hungry, and it's, it's you know, he's an up-and-coming rapper who is brought in to headline for Connor's tour to kind of boost sales as Hunter's star rises while Connor's star is still falling. And Chris Red is hilarious in this movie. He really is kind of a breakout star. And I joked before about... After I joked after seeing it on Twitter that I thought that it would be funny if Chris Red starts, you know, breaking out as an actor and being in all these, you know, being in all these major things while the Lonely Island guys are kind of, you know, st- still where they still where they are. And Andy Samberg is kind of st- stuck in that sort of post SNL rut that a lot of actors get, and. I wouldn't be surprised if that did happen because Chris Redd is hilarious as this parody of a rap of of a modern day rapper. Something like there are times when he's like on stage and he's really like edge like he's supposed to. I'm I'm not sure. I'm not sure exactly which artist he would be parodying, but when you see him, you know exactly the kind of rapper he's playing like you would like if you see it and you know hip-hop you know exactly the kind of guy he's portraying and it's and chris red gets a lot of the best lines in this movie and he and sandberg have great chemistry and i really dig the movie i'm not gonna say it's the new spinal tap just because i feel like spinal tap had a lot more behind the scenes writing and F- and like thought put into the commentary like it was straight up satire i feel like pop star is more light-hearted parody than biting satire the way that spinal tap and a lot of christopher guest movies are but at the same time it, it's still a blast like the only thing i would say against it is there's this uh, narrative mechanic that they use where it's like a documentary and it's famous artists talking about the Style Boys and about what's happening with Connor the way it's, you know, as though it were a documentary. And, I mean, they get guys like Mariah Carey to show up, Carrie Underwood, Simon Cowell, Usher, DJ Khaled, Questlove, all the... Arcade Fire, Nas, Nas and RZA and Ringo Starr, these amazingly talented musicians, but they're talking about a fake character and... I feel like a lot of them aren't in on the joke. Like, I think Simon and Questlove and Usher probably get the joke the best. 
Whereas I feel like they focus a lot on Nas, and I don't think Nas has the comedic timing for this kind of thing. Because he always feels a bit stiff when he's doing his bits. And that's a mechanic that I pro- I probably would have either gone with getting comedians to do impersonations, like get F- get Jay Farrow in there to be a fake musician, or get musicians who are, are a little more loose, you know, who who are e- who ease better into the comedy of it, and and can do the bits the way that the Lonely Island guys wrote them. The other thing is, there's a bit here. Uh, Will Arnett shows up again. Uh, he's in two films out this weekend. He is essentially the Harvey Levin parody for TMZ. And there's this whole, there are a couple bits of where they're making fun of TMZ. And I feel like if you watch TMZ and you like TMZ, you might enjoy the bits more. But I've, but it's been, TMZ has been mocked mercilessly for years now. So I feel like having a TMZ joke now is almost... That's why I feel like this movie should have come out like a couple years ago when all of this was fresh material, you know? But at the same time, it's not terrible. The jokes are there and they're, you know, most of them are solid and the performances are fun and it's, it's interesting. It's short too. It's like 86 minutes or something. It's a little over 80 minutes and I feel like that's almost to the detriment of whatever story they were trying to tell. Like, I feel like a lot of stuff is left, you know, is kind of left undeveloped and it feel it feels like if they had focused less on the sort of narrative device of having artists come in and try to talk about a fake group to have more of the sketches, that may have worked better. Cause like Imogen Poots shows up as Connor's girlfriend and she is given a little, very little to do, ultimately, and then she's just completely written out of the movie. So I feel like, it feels like there may have been more stuff there, but it was cut out for time. I don't know. It feels like, I just feel like it's not as great as people are saying, because it's, I mean, it's fun. It's, it's not terrible, but I do feel like it's being overly praised just because it's good. I feel like the praise it's getting is good, is good, but it's not as great. Like, people are comparing it to Spinal Tap, and I I gotta say, I, I honestly think Spinal Tap is a much better movie. I feel like Popstar manages to capture a lot of the same stuff Spinal Tap does, but with pop music instead of live music. I do think that Spinal Tap is a much thoroughly produced and thought out movie than pop star is, but hey, it's poppy, you know, it's pop music. So and there's there really isn't as much thought put into it, so it kind of fits. So yeah, honestly, it's the best thing to come out this weekend. So if you want to have a good laugh and you love the Lonely Island guys, be sure to support their movie because it's fun. And on and honestly, my favorite part was probably in the credits. I won't spoil that bit for you, but they, there's a nice little stinger mid credits. That is probably the funniest thing in the whole movie. I have become a whole new person because of you. Do you know something, Clark? You are pretty much the only thing that makes me want to get up in the morning. Wait for me to come home. Whoo, 
yeah, nothing like seeing a romance movie all by yourself. Although, to be fair, it wasn't couples when I went to see it. It was just like a girls' night out, it seemed like. Anyway, we're talking about the romantic drama Me Before You, about how Daenerys Targaryen dresses like Zoe Deschanel and falls in love with a quadriplegic, not Robert Pattinson or Eddie Redmayne. So yeah, um, I've got thoughts on this. I will leave my harsher thoughts for after the spoiler because it heavily involves spoilers. I will say that I'm I'm typically not a fan of a lot of romance movies. That isn't to say that I abhor romance. One of my favorite movies is Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, and I love how they depict relationships and love and loving somebody in that movie. I just feel like a lot of what Hollywood releases lately as romance, and even what they've released before, doesn't hold up when you think about it. It's all very fantasy-based, and... This is no exception. This is definitely this is based on somebody's bestseller and the main thing I can say is god Hollywood loves to let us know how great it is to be rich cuz between this and 50 shades of gray and god what are the other how many other romance movies are out there that it's all like upper class like lifestyles of the rich and famous setting and spending of money and you never see Stuff like West Side Story, where it's like a couple of working class kids living in the slums and finding love in a hopeless place, so to speak, you know? It's all about how much fun it is to have money, and boy, does this movie love to talk about how great it is to be rich. I mean, once again, it's another... Because that's the other thing they love to do, is pair a working class person with somebody in the upper class, and the upper-class person loves the realness of the working-class person, so they bring them up to the upper class. And this is no exception. It's it's a working-class girl who gets a job with, apparently, the local owners of a medieval castle. I, I don't get this setting. But, there's, but she's hired to help take care of the son who has who, after a vague accident that they never really go into, has become quadriplegic, paralyzed from the neck down, essentially. And it's about the two of them forming a relationship. And, yeah, I mean, the main thing is, God, try to imagine this story with, like, a guy in, like, East London who's quadriplegic, you know? Somebody in the slums who's quadriplegic. That completely changes everything, doesn't it? Because, yeah, that's the whole thing with a lot of these movies, is if you change, if you make it so that the two people are in the same class, it's not romantic in the least. Or it might be. That's the whole thing. If you change the class structure so that it's two working-class people, then would it hold up? Or is it all about fantasy over having money? And quite frankly, I don't care. I'm not going to say I've lived poor. I, I'm not going to say I live poorly. I don't live poorly. I definitely know my place. I am firmly in the lower middle class. 
I know my I know where I stand, so to speak. I'm not going to act like I am, you know, destitute. I have I'm recording this in the suburbs on a MacBook Pro, so I'm not going to act like I'm some poor destitute, you know, schmo. I am firmly lower middle class, and I quite honestly don't care about the lavishness and the extravagance of of all the of all these things that wealth brings you and it's 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 always vague about how these people attain that wealth it's either inherited or it's you know like vaguely financially based but it's whatever makes you the most money so you can do literally anything and I don't find that interesting. Like, I find it more interesting to try and make ends meet and still make a relationship work. I find that that would make for a much more interesting story than it just... Because money makes everything easier. Let's just be honest. Money makes everything easier. So to have... To, to just be like, oh, this poor guy... This guy is living in a freaking castle! Let's not act like his life is completely terrible. It's terrible that he's disabled compared to being able-bodied. But compared to if his parents were like factory workers or also disabled, yeah, they never talk about things like that. It's, I'll get into that later in the spoiler part. I got issues. But yeah, it, it's, it, it, having money is great. And this movie makes sure to let you know that. And also, let you know that people are terrible. Like, inherently selfish and thoughtless and only caring about them and, like, completely narcissistic. And it's, like, every character, every character is completely selfish in this movie. I mean, right down to, like, her parents, they're selfish. The, the mom is selfish. The, the dude is selfish. The the girl, the girl especially is selfish. Her boyfriend is selfish. The sister is, everybody is selfish. And like the point of the movie is trying to say that you gotta do you is kind of terrible because what about every, what about the people around you? People around you have feelings and thoughts and opinions and you should care about them just somewhat. But yeah, everybody is terrible in this movie. So yeah, I get to watch terrible people with money flaunt it about and then act like they've got problems. And I'm like, no, no, no. I mean, like, well, how am I supposed to relate to that? It's like, oh, there's their lives. It's so fraught with tragedy and drama. And no, no, these are just terrible people. These are just awful human beings that why would anybody want to be around why would you ever want to be around these people they're awful they're selfish they're just so self-centered so yeah uh, and yet i feel like that's the kind of thing that people want to see people want to be people don't want to care about anybody else they want to act selfish they want to focus inward they want to care only about themselves so yeah, it's, it's it's a fantasy. It is an inherent fantasy about flagrant wealth and being self-centered. 
So yeah, I don't find that romantic. I don't find the whole thing romantic in the slightest. And the situation, I kind of want to get into that in the spoiler because it's very, very spoiler heavy. But I don't find it romantic at all. I find it insulting, kind of. And I guess that's the thing is, that's what happens when you're only thinking of yourself. And when you're so self-centered that you can't think about the people around you. And that's what happens when you write characters like that and you don't think, and you don't think, you just, you just fantasize. It feels like this movie was written by somebody imagining what it must be like to be disabled rather than knowing somebody who is disabled. You know? It feels a lot like that. And, yeah, I, I heard, that, like, there was a thread on Facebook on one of the pages I follow that talked about the movie, and people were, like, even, like, people who read the book were even pissed about what happened. So, I, I mean, I, it was spoiled for me, but at the same time, I was like, okay, look, I can give it a chance. If it's a, if it's a decent movie, then it can make up for that. Like, it, the, like, maybe the spoiler won't matter, and maybe that mentality won't matter. So, I gave it a fair shake, and sitting throughout that movie... I was on the same page as that whole thread because I could not stand these people aside from the disability. Just aside from the disability itself, I could not stand these people. And I'll give it this. It's competently made. Like, the actors are playing their roles, but the roles are written terribly and they're terrible people. And it's shot well. I mean, it's not the worst thing you could like. So it's not like... Like, it's not, like, completely terrible, like, people not knowing how to make film bad. But that doesn't make it good. I, I, all my issues stem from the writing and what the writing intends. You know, what the writing is saying about life and about, you know, being disabled and about all that. So, I honestly can't recommend this movie. I couldn't stand it at all. But I'm not going to say you shouldn't see it. You know, I'm not going to say, you know, you can't like this movie. You can like whatever you want to like. If you like this movie, good for you. You know, see it for, if you thought you might want to see it, see it for yourself. Make your own opinions. I just personally didn't care for it. Now, if you want to avoid any spoilers, skip ahead to the discussion. Just, you know, fast forward until you start hearing the music bumper and then we'll talk about being disabled in film. For those who stuck around for the spoiler portion, holy cow, what, what, this just... Okay, so, for a more in-depth premise, a working-class girl is hired by a rich family to take care of their son who is quadriplegic. What they're not telling you is that the son has signed up to be euthanized in Switzerland. And the movie is about how the mo uh, about how his mom and Amelia Clark's character try to make him not want to commit suicide. So right there that's a shaky premise. That whole thing is a shaky premise. Now then, how it's written? First off, Amelia Clark is part of a working-class family that's struggling to get by. And, like, everybody's living together, and then 
Uh, Jenna Coleman, Clara from the most recent seasons of Doctor Who, plays her sister, and she goes off to college for something to further her education. I think they barely mention what the sister is even studying. She's out of the picture for the most part, except to comment on how to how Amelia Clark should dress for a date and talking about you know like being a soundboard for Amelia Clark to talk to. There's no interest in what she does, only that by Jenna Coleman leaving and going off to college, it's up to Amelia Clark to keep the family afloat. So Jenna Coleman selfishly leaves the family to pursue her education more and tells Amelia, literally tells Amelia Clark that you have to stay with this job that you don't like because you're the only income this family will have. What? I mean... I guess that's real. That I mean, that that situation happens. But wow, I mean, just wow, just up front. Nope, you got to stay with this job you hate because you're the only income now. Woof. Of course, they never really talk about what the mom does for a job, other than just you know. But they never go into anybody else's character, really. So yeah. Amelia Clark then goes to work for this people who, these people who live in a castle, and she is essentially the emotion. She feels like an emotional prostitute because she doesn't really do any. Uh, that's the thing, for depicting somebody who's quadriplegic, they never go into the mechanics of being quadriplegic. It's just he's in his wheelchair, or he's in bed, and she doesn't really know how to do anything. She's just there to fall... She's being paid to fall in love with him, essentially. Because she doesn't do anything. She is not a... Like a nurse or a care... You know, like an actual caretaker. She's being paid to fall in love with this guy, essentially. Because that's... Woof. Yeah. Talk about a, a, a fresh gig. Like, who wouldn't want to be paid to fall in love with somebody? Jeez. And yeah, and then she overhears the parents arguing over about his decision for youth, to euthanize himself, and she sees him meeting with lawyers about euthanize, about going to Switzerland and having the procedure, and she's like, oh, if I take him on lavish, extravagant vacations and go to all kinds of things and take him out on dates... Maybe he'll want to stay alive without knowing anything about this guy. Like, barely knowing anything about this guy. Other than, he used to be very able-bodied, he was very active, and he feels stuck and confined to the wheelchair. And he hates it. He can't stand it. But we never really get to see his thing from his perspective. It's all about her. It's all about her loving this quite frankly, chiseled, look, good-looking guy who's confined to a wheelchair. Like, imagine if this was her being Stephen Hawking's second wife. Like, if we were seeing that story. Like, it's not that. It's, it, uh, it's just, like, you never see a harsh portrayal of anything. It's all fantasy and you know, it's all lovely and precious and ugh, it's almost, it, that's why I said it was insulting. It's just, 
I mean, she tries to think that falling in love with a guy and seducing him will make him want to stay alive. And you're dressed like... I mean, this character could have easily been played by Zoe Deschanel, the way Amelia Clark dresses. And she's all quirky and precious and precocious, and she wears, like, little bumblebee tights, and she sings silly little kid songs, and she's all quirky and interesting and... and bleh. And yet that's supposed to make him want to stay alive? I mean, if his... I mean, if... She might as well hire a prostitute if it was about that. Because that's what it is. That's all this is. It's the mom trying to selfishly keep the guy alive when he wants, doesn't want to stay alive. And it's never about how in, how much pain he's in. They hardly, like, every so often there's a hospital scene where they talk about, oh, he's caught pneumonia like three times. Why are you just showing how, if this is supposed to be a terrible life, show us how much pain he's in. Show us how terrible things are that he would want to commit suicide. It, but it's not about that. It's about how Amelia Clark needs to go out and see the world and experience life. And she can't do that on a working class budget, so she needs the money somehow, so she seduces a quadriplegic man into leaving her money. That's essentially what happens. It, it, it's mind-boggling how somebody thought this worked. Like, wh how? Why? What? what? It's not even getting into Matthew Lewis, Neville Longbottom from the Harry Potter series, all grown up and, like, fit and good-looking. He plays Amelia Clark's boyfriend, who is this fitness-obsessed, like, health nut. And he's all about running and being part of marathons and being part of running events. And he's originally depicted as selfish until Amelia's about to break up with him and then he starts paying attention to her. And I feel worse for him because, yeah, he's obsessed with running, but he wants to... But at least, at least the guy wants to include Amelia Clark's character. It's not like he's sleeping with some running chick on the side. They're supposed to be together for seven years, yet we never get to see what it was that brought them together. Was it just proximity? Was it just that they were high school mates or something? Like, why would they be interested in each other? And why would this, like, very introverted girl be with this extroverted health nut running guy? When she, and like, they show her, like, not wanting to run and how it hurts and how she doesn't like physical exertion. And... How did they meet? What, what, what's, where is the history? They never go into that. Because it's all about Amelia Clark and the quadriplegic. In which case, why even have a boyfriend? Maybe have an ex-boyfriend. You know? That way it's not... That way you're not treating him like... Like, like garbage. I mean... Uh, like, the way she treats this guy for what? Being obsessed over running. Like, oh, he loves running more than me. He loves, okay, he loves running. Then why were you with him in the first place? If you don't like that he loves running, then dump him. Just, just dump him. Talk about things. Talk about why you're having issues. Communicate, for God's sake. And that's the whole other thing. Amelia Clark is doing this sort of subterfuge seduction to try and keep her... Try and keep the guy alive. 
And then it's all revealed in a big twist that she knew the whole time. And he, oh my God, he's still going to do it. I have failed. I'm sorry. You failed? You failed? The only thing you failed at is coming off as a decent human being. I get that you want to keep the guy alive. Okay. He's dead set on euthanizing himself because he can't stand it. Talk to him! Communicate! Do something! Trying to secretly seduce him is not going to change his mind. Talking to him might. Treating him like a human being. Oh my God, the way they treat the disabled. Just, just the inherent, inherent bias of an able-bodied person feeling about how terrible it must be to be disabled and how insulting and humiliating and oh god it was it was insulting all right it was insulting to my tastes like how is this okay how is this okay why why uh, so yeah that's my real thoughts on me before you. And it just goes to show how much I pay attention to the writing over anything else. And how terrible, terrible, terrible writing can bring down an otherwise okay movie. Because let's be honest, this, this really wants the Nicholas Sparks crowd. The only thing it didn't do, the only thing is it's in Britain instead of South Carolina. Because God knows Nicholas Sparks loves tugging at them heartstrings. Ugh, God. Anyway, after the break, we'll be discussing disabilities on film. For Kind of. I'll, I'll get into it. Hello to you out there in Norway. You may not comprehend, but you not understand. As I go past your window, give me lucky luck. Now here's the thing. I wasn't sure what to do for the discussion, and given that, I, I mean, I how am I going to keep talking about franchises and sequels and all that and nostalgia when that's kind of part and parcel with the internet and reviews and criticism? So that wasn't exactly going to make a great discussion for TMNT. Then, so mockumentaries maybe for pop star. But I feel like I'm probably not going to get the chance to talk about disabilities for who knows? Who knows how long it might be? Because here's the thing. Depending on what disability you are, you, you, it, it really ranges how well you're depicted in film. And I did find something through the Irish Center, which is part of Vanderbilt University in Tennessee. And as far as I could tell... As pro it's probably the most thorough list of disabilities on film. To the point where they even break down like, oh, there is a minor character with a disability. So, it's very thorough. Like, almost, almost like, to its detriment, 
because if you want to really talk about a disability, it helps to know which movies focus on it. Like, which movies actually discuss the issue instead of just having a character with a disability? Because as nice as it is to have a character with a disability just just exist in the universe, to be like, hey, these people exist. They're here. They're here. You know, that sort of thing. To have them... It's nice to have that as much as anything else, but it feels like you need... It feels like you should also discuss the disability and, and you know, and, and kind of allow people to understand it better rather than just be like, they exist, you know, especially if it's in an insulting way. And that's the other thing is this Iris Center page breaks it down even further to like, like all kinds of different tiers of disability. So I'm going to do it in kind of the way they broke it down. And we're, they start off, off, and it's mostly alphabetically, but they start off with autism. So it's depictions of autism in film. And a lot of these films, they are, I have to kind of filter out the ones that I, I've at least recognized. Like stuff that you would have heard of. Because if I talk about like, here is a old movie that you've never heard of that also has somebody blind in it, you know? Like, that's not going to help. It helps to know that they, there was something bigger that talked about it. So... With autism, the first thing was a TV movie, oddly enough, in 1979, well before the rise of autism in public consciousness. Like, even before it was, it's, I think that was even before its acceptance into the DSM. Like, that was, like, the, the big rise in autism diagnosis and in autism awareness came from the 80s and 90s. Like, it started with Rain Man. That's kind of what broke out autism to mainstream viewers. But it was really in the early 90s, once it was in the DSM, that that Asperger's and autism really kind of came to the forefront and people started paying attention more. And so in 1979, to have a TV movie about it, I guess it gets probably really hokey and cliche, but... I you never know. There are really good TV movies, like especially depending on who's making. Like Duel by Steven Spielberg is a TV movie, and I'm going to talk about Sybil later down the line. And HBO is technically a TV network, so there's good TV movies out there. I'm guessing in 1979, talking about autism with a movie I've never heard of, I'm guessing it probably doesn't hold up. So the first major one after that is Rain Man, which was written by a guy who's worked extensively with people in the spectrum. He also went on to write a movie that most people probably haven't heard of called Mozart and the Whale. And it's about a couple who have Asperger's and the man in the couple, played by Josh Hartnett, works with people who are lower functioning on the spectrum. And it's a good movie. I really liked it. And I thought it was a very good portrayal of people with Asperger's. And it was very, you know, it was accurate, but it was is while at the same time being heartfelt. And you know, so yeah, this when this guy writes about autism, it, he he gets it. And I feel like the Rain Man was the kind of first thing to really grasp at 
what autism was. And and Dustin Hoffman gives this fantastic performance as Raymond, who uh, who is much lower functioning on the spectrum than than say I am, someone who was diagnosed early on in the nineties with Asperger's, and. It, that kind of became the stereotype, so to speak. Dustin Hoffman, unfortunately, also kind of created the stereotype for people with autism. And other than that, it's really... Lo- like, at the same time, they also miss a bunch of stuff. Mozart and the Whale didn't show up on this list. Neither did American Splendor, who talks about a character. Like, in American Splendor, Harvey Picard's best friend and co-worker is mildly autistic. Like, he he definitely is on the spectrum somewhere. But they never really admit to it. They say he is autistic in the movie somewhat, but they never admit that he's, like, got, you know, what he has. They Because I don't think he was ever really officially diagnosed. But he definitely exhibits features of autism. They just never really... But then they're not... those. So it's not as extensive as you might think. But at the same time, it's probably a work in progress because it doesn't go all the way up to 2016 yet. Uh, The only other major one after Rain Man, besides the two that somehow missed the list, was an animated movie called Mary and Max. And I watched this on Netflix. If you get the chance, watch it. I think it's narrated by Jeffrey Rush. It's a Rush... It's an Australian claymation movie about... uh, about how this relationship formed via via pen pal between an Australian uh, woman and a guy with autism in New York, I think in like Queens or Brooklyn. I forget which borough he lived in, but it's it's re- I mean it as far as depictions of Asperger's and autism and like he's lo- he's not as low functioning as Raymond is in Rain Man. But he is definitely on the spectrum. And I think he was officially diagnosed to the character of Max. And it's it's very it's based on the writer's experiences with writing somebody in New York. And at the same time, it's so it's not like it's not like true life. It's not like a, it's not like an actual life story. Like this was what happened. So it's it, you know, there are artistic flourishes. But at the same time, it's the depiction of autism is realistic without being insulting. Uh, after that, in 2010, was Claire Danes starring as Temple Grandin, probably the most famous person with autism, somebody who is autistic. And she has Asperger's, and she famously developed a means of herding cattle into a slaughterhouse in a way that kind of helped, that was based on how she needed, like... Pressure, like here, because that's the thing. Somebody who's autistic, who's very sen- sensitive to stimulate to stimuli, if they are in a fit, let's a fit's probably not the right word, but when when they are upset, it usually helps to kind of apply some pressure, and that's why a lot of people will like hurt, like hug themselves. I would hide under heavy blankets after a hard day at school. Temple Grandin, like, designed this little fort and this machine, even, to kind of help her kind of, you know, deal with this sensory overload. And I think 
the uh, the actual Temple Grandin was involved with the production of the movie, so it stayed very true to life. And that was once that's a TV movie because it's technically HBO. And if you get the chance, watch Temple. I think it's just Temple Grandin or Temple. It stars Claire Danes, and I think she really gets the character of Temple Grandin down and is able to portray autism in a, once again in a very respectable way while being accurate and being accurate to the kind of hardships that people on the spectrum face. After that was the pretty controversial, extremely loud, and incredibly close. I didn't see that. I wasn't reviewing movies at the time. I remember my mom, who has gone on to study and work with a lot of people on the spectrum, as well as people with, you know, all kinds of disabilities. She wanted to see it because she wanted to see how it portrayed, you know, somebody with Asperger's, because the little kid has Asperger's in the movie. And the controversy arose from that and from the fact that it that even 10 years after the 10 years afterwards it's using 911 as part of the story so it got it got like a lot of criticism on both fronts from a depiction of somebody with Asperger's to a to using 911 as a story point and i I feel I'm not sure how to feel about the movie because I never got the chance to see it. And I can't say how accurate the depiction is of autism, but it's definite. but I can't, but if you get, the, but I can't say it's like, like a bad movie or a bad depiction of autism on film being that I haven't seen it. So I might have to go back and check that out, but I, yeah, when I feel that nine eleven is one of those things where if you want to talk about it, it's it it can't be an afterthought. It can't be like oh oh and by the way, somebody died at nine eleven. That's a serious issue in its of itself. So to talk like it's you can't really just make that like a pl- a plot point. You know, it's like oh at nine eleven and then. But I don't know. I I have to see the movie and judge for myself how everything works out. But I feel like a lot of that criticism was at the mention of the kid with Asperger's and 9-11. I feel like that's a, essentially a trigger. I think those people were triggered, for lack of a better word. But I'd have to go back and see. The last thing, at least, that I could find with so depicting somebody with autism on film in a major way was The Imitation Game. And that was... They never really go into him having autism. It's about uh, Alan Turing, uh, the guy who developed the Enigma machine and who the Turing test is named after for uh, for determining whether or not AI is superior, whether or not something is AI, and whether or not AI has achieved self-awareness. And Alan, it, it's very Hollywoodized. I'll get, you know, that's what I've come to find out about it. Because I liked it. I loved it when I first saw it. And then I looked into it and I'm like, oh, wow. They changed a lot. Like, a lot, a lot. And I will say that I think depicting somebody with autism, Benedict Cumberbatch isn't terrible. But at the same time, it's never really addressed in the sense that, like, like he like he has 
symptoms of autism, but at the same time, you can't say he's autistic the same way Rain Man, you could have with Rain Man or with Temple, you know? So the autism wasn't really part and parcel of the character. It was just kind of like a quirk. And I feel like that's a lot of things. Like, a lot of times, autism is almost used as a quirk, like a character trait. And I feel like... Like, that's the thing with Sheldon on Big Bang Theory is my mom loves him because she reminds her so much of people on the spectrum that she's helped raise, me especially. And I feel like with that, it's all a character trait and a stereotype rather than, you know, somebody actually depicting somebody with autism. Moving on, deafness, there was a lot of deafness in, like, the third, like the first issue of deafness on film was something called Bo Bandit. So, while autism didn't show up until 1979 on film, Bo Bandit, by RKO Pictures, was the first person, was the first film to really depict deafness on, in a major way. And... From what I can tell, it's some old West movie where the partner to the band, where given the synopsis from Iris, a bandit and his partner who is deaf and also does not speak, so he's a deaf and a mute, plan to rob a bank. Soon, however, romance intrudes when the bandit falls in love with a local woman. So it feels like, and I feel like that's a lot of things that'll happen is somebody's deaf and also mute. So... That became a lot of the stereotype in film for a long time. And as far as definite, I can't say to that, but I do think it's nice that as early as 1930, they were getting, you know, people were acknowledging the deafness exist. The one thing I'm surprised never showed up on the list was the <clears throat> Helen Keller story, the miracle worker. I mean, th that's probably one of the most renowned depictions of not only deafness, blindness, both characters were, you know, uh, Helen Keller was blind, deaf, and mute, and Anne Sullivan, the, her mentor, her teacher, was blind. So that you've got two blind, two blind main characters, and the other character is also deaf and mute. So I'm surprised, let me double check. Nope, not, doesn't show up at least. Something called The Tingler shows up, as well as the stories of Thomas Edison and Alexander Graham Bell. Also, It's a Wonderful Life shows up because George Bailey is deaf in one ear. I feel like, I feel like that's not the same, you know? Like, having, I mean, it is a disability, so I probably should have included it because it is the main character and he has a disability. I don't know, it doesn't feel the same, like... Compared to that, like, nobody thinks of George Bailey as deaf. They don't think of him, like, they don't, like, he's never, like, he's never, I, I want to say this without being insulting, but the way that, like, the way that James Stewart plays George Bailey, you never think of him as disabled. Like, he may be deaf in one ear, but that's not a part of the story, you know? Like, like, when I want to talk about disability on film, I'm talking about people with, you know, where it's a major, major issue, not even major issue, but, like, there's an acknowledgement of the fact that they are disabled. And I feel like nobody ever really thinks about George Bailey as a disabled character because he's deaf and what... Like, that's the thing. In uh, the comics, in Marvel comics, Hawkeye is deaf 
and Tony Stark gives him uh, a very advanced form of cochlear implant. So technically, Hawkeye is a disabled character in the Marvel comics. They haven't like, they haven't added that to the cinematic universe yet. Although I feel like that would be a nice touch to add the fact that it, when Hawkeye shows up, he is technically de- he is technically he is technically deaf and is only a- and is able to fight thanks to Tony's little cochlear implants that help him regain his hearing. You know, something like like I feel that would be a nice touch to remind people that you know Hawkeye is. You know, Hawkeye is deaf. He's a disabled character, but he's still able to function thanks to the you know modern science and medicine, and and that it's you know it's okay to have a disability. But who knows? Who knows where they want to go with that? As far as deafness goes, other than like oh minor character has deafness or character you know like this person this other supporting character is also deaf. You know, there's a lot of that in that Iris list. And yet it doesn't cover the miracle worker somehow. After that is probably one of the most prominent pictures to deal with deafness. Like, because that's the thing. It's Children of a Lesser God in 1986. And that movie I remember hearing, I've heard about, I haven't seen it yet, but I remember hearing about it from my parents. And they loved Children of a Lesser God. It was so compelling because it's about two deaf characters and the female character is played by a deaf woman who went on to win the Oscar for it. And it's about a deaf man teaching his teaching students at a school for the hearing impaired and he and him falling in love with one of his old students. And I don't and I think I need to go back and see that one just because it's like to have that big of a movie talking about and you know, dealing with the issues of deafness, and have and and depicting a romantic couple as both being deaf. I mean, that's an that that's a that's a triumph, and the fact that it's an Oscar award winning movie, that's amazing. I feel like I'm missing. I, I'm almost missing out because I'm not privy to this sort of thing. After that, though, the next major one is a depiction of Beethoven going deaf. I think Beethoven as he's going deaf. Or after he's gone deaf in Immortal Beloved, which was the first major, re- major like biopic of Beethoven, besides like TV stuff and little you know little things. This was like a big Hollywood production of Beethoven's bi- of a story about Beethoven, and then the writing of Fur Elise, I believe. So they're depicting Beethoven going deaf, and at, the year after that is another music musically inclined movie called Mr. Holland's Opus. Starring Richard Dreyfus as a high school conductor who is working on a major, you know, composition throughout his entire life, the opus of the title, and his son is deaf. So while, but at the same time, it's not just oh his son is also deaf. No, his son being deaf is a major plot point of the movie. Like, he, like Mr. Holland. Richard Dreyfuss's character is very, you know, it takes a lot of time for him to adjust to his son being deaf because he's so, you know, he's so attached to his music and to compos- and to composing. And he, he, at first, he kind, I, if I remember correctly from watching the movie, it feels like he 
He almost doesn't want his son because his son can't enjoy music. But and and it's part of his character to adapt and realize just you know you know is he you know is he going to cut his son out of his life forever or is he going to be able or or is he going to just find a way to allow his son to enjoy the things that he enjoys to to be able to you know it's like it's a lot it's a lot of things that parents with uh it's a it's something that a lot of parents of disabled children have to deal with is do they adapt their own lifestyle to help this child help this child who is not, who has you know who can't function norm you know normally quote unquote or do they do they abandon them do they forget about them do they like you can't i can't use you you know you're no use to me that sort of thing and i feel like that was a nice touch for that movie and i feel like it was, i i'm not sure if the actor who played his son was deaf but i feel but it was definitely a you know a, i it was i thought it was an a real honest depiction of deafness and you know being able and parents having to deal with deafness and, you know in the in the child and how the child has to de- you know how has to grow up with that sort of you know where the mom devotes herself to help to helping this child function and the father doesn't want anything to do with him because you know what he can't he he is he has he has he struggles to be able to help this child who need to be able to adapt to what his son needs after that the only real things that have come up in terms of Deafness, like they mention a character, the character in Emma, starring I believe Gwyneth Paltrow, in the ninety in nineteen ninety six was deaf, and there's a couple in Jerry Maguire that you that you sign language. That you see what you see what I'm saying. I mean that's how in depth Iris goes to like oh there are extras in Jerry Maguire who use sign language, and so. There's a lot of stuff like that, but I feel like the last real major depiction of deafness was part of was on Babel, which was like the year after Crash won for Best Picture, and Babel was trying to do the same thing only about only across languages, like it was trying to depict all these different things, and I don't think it worked perfectly. I feel like Babel had a lot of issues, but. In Babel, one of the kids, uh, one of, I believe, Brad Pitt and Kate Blanchett's kids in America ha- is deaf and is deaf and mute. And I feel like that's the last real, ma- like, there's stuff I'm seeing. There's an HBO documentary, uh, another documentary, something called The Hammer about Mark Hamill, a, a deaf a deaf man who tries who goes on to win collegiate wrestling so it's it's a they depict a lot they list a lot of documentaries which is good cuz there's another uh documentary called Sound and Fury uh I forgot to mention it it's 2000 I was mostly talking about like fictional narrative movies but Sound and Fury 
It's about two brothers, one who is able to hear, I believe, and one who is deaf. And it's about the unknown sort, the unknown sort of divide in the deaf community, as it were, about cochlear implants. How I believe the deaf, if I'm guessing, having not seen it, the deaf brother is very adamant about cochlear implants because it's like you can function without, you know, with sign language. You don't need to have cochlear implants. Whereas the hearing brother probably feels like you should have cochlear implants because then you can be normal. And it's that sort of struggle between the two of them. I, it sounds really interesting. I probably should get the, should take the chance to look at it. Whew, the big one right here. Emotional and behavioral disorders. Now, what this usually entails in Hollywood is people who have mental breakdowns. Like, the generic, like, emotional breakdown, as it were. It's very stereotypical in Hollywood. And the first time it showed up was actually after deafness in 1932. Once again, for RKO. RKO seems to be, the like, the forefront of movies depicting disabilities in the 30s, a bill of divorcement. Life has changed dramatically for a man who has returned home from a mental institution after 15 years. He must adjust to a life in which his ex-wife is about to marry again and his daughter has grown up without him. Sounds interesting. It sounds like something that could be rife for a remake. It would make for a perfect remake because that's a, that sounds like a really compelling story. And... So yeah, that was in 1932, the first time they talked about actual, like, emotional and behavioral disabilities in film. And, I mean, this keeps showing up again and again. 1956, The Bad Seed is about a girl who is, who is emotionally disturbed. And, it, you know, that's why they call her The Bad Seed. And they, act, and they talk about how it might be hereditary. Three Faces of Eve, about a woman with multiple personalities. Psycho. Talk about emotional and behavioral disorders. Psycho, the, the, the big one, the one that kind of... The one that kind of shone a light on that sort of thing. A Clockwork Orange, about a group of misfit... About a group of little punks in, in a dystopian London, I guess, and how they're all emotionally and behaviorally disturbed. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest shows up a lot. And, yeah, that was one of the big... I don't know how mental health workers feel about One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Because I don't know about the accuracy of its depictions. But I, I remember... I know so much about mental health and film. I mean, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is iconic to people who are involved in entertainment and in film. And when you want to talk about mental health especially... One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is usually their go-to, especially, like, Nurse Ratchet is the terrible nurse who who mistreats all of the patients, and, like, I feel like there's so much going on in that movie that there's another one that would be right for a remake if you wanted to. Tell a different, you know, have some up-and-coming young actor fill the Jack Nicholson part and then cast people with actual developmental disabilities to play the to, to play the mental patients and then ooh oh god Kate Blanchett Tilda Swinton 
Ooh, ooh, ooh. Uh, Julianne Moore. Ooh, yes. As Nurse Ratchet, I would... Ooh, I like it. I really like it. Uh, somebody pass that on to whoever owns the rights. But after One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, we returned to TV for the first real major times with Sybil. The breakout role for, I believe, Sally Field in 1976 as, the, as a woman who had developed... Uh, it's not multiple personalities. They've, they've changed the name of that. Uh, I'm going to get this right. That's what it was. Dissociative Identity Disorder is what it's called nowadays, is the technical term, the medical term for it. And Sybil was kind of, as far as I know, what I've seen bits and pieces of Sybil. I know they remade it in like the early 2000s, I think. It wasn't as good. It was like a miniseries, I think they tried. But it was, from what I've seen of it, it doesn't feel as insulting I, but then once again I'm not I don't know anybody in the medical health in the mental health field who can kind of comment on the authenticity of Sally Field's performance as somebody with dissociative identity disorder but Sybil was based on a woman's life story and she develops multiple personalities in as a coping mechanism for an abusive mother for her abusive as for her abusive, for the abuse that her mother gave to her, and I remember that was another thing that, in terms of depictions of mental health, that became really iconic at the time, and I think it's really helped to kind of lay out that sort of depiction of that disorder on film. I feel like that was one of the first ones to really talk about it. I mean, like the Three Faces of Eve talked about having multiple personalities. But I feel like Sybil was the one that really kind of cemented how Hollywood looks at people with dissociative identity disorder. I mean, 70s continues onward with Taxi Driver, you know. Uh, yeah, Robert De Niro's character is has post-traumatic stress disorder from Vietnam, and he is emotionally disturbed. And it's about an emotionally disturbed character. So, so yeah, the 70s seemed to be all about this. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, well, Clockwork Orange, Sybil, Equus came out in 77, and it's about somebody with, ment what is it? I know the, um, Daniel Radcliffe played it on stage, but I think it was, I don't know if the stage play was based on the movie or if the movie adapted it from a stage play before then. But after blinding several horses, a boy with emotional or behavioral disorders, they don't go into what, is sent to a psychiatrist. And the dark secret behind why the boy did it. So yeah, Equus. If you, if you've, if you heard about Daniel Radcliffe, you know, and it's mostly about, all, oh, Harry Potter showed his wand on stage. Ooh. But if you want to know more about that story, about that plot, about that play, you, there's a movie about it in 1977. I, I'll look up who stars in it. Hold on. Ooh, Sidney Lumet. Sidney Lumet. Uh, who is Sidney Lumet again? I feel like I, I know that name. 12 Angry Men, Dog Day Afternoon, Network, and The Verdict. Ooh. S Serpico. Okay, yeah, Sidney Lumet just... So, yeah, I mean, this... Uh, wait, what, was he... Is he, is he the guy who, Serpico, Dog Day Afternoon, the, oh, he did The Wiz. 
Huh. That's interesting. <laughs> that's a that's an interesting twist. You never ah oh god no um no that's somebody else who did um Straw Dogs. Not Sidney Lumet. I did Child's Play too. Oh no, that's something else. That's something with James Mason and Bo Bridges. So yeah, Sidney Lumet, director of Twelve Angry Men and Serpico, Dog Day Afternoon and Network. He's the guy who directed Equus, starring Richard Burton and Peter Firth. And yeah, it's about a Richard Burton, I think, plays the Yeah, Richard Burton is the psychiatrist. Doesn't I can't tell who is the the young actor who Ah, must be Peter Firth. Because he was nominated for supporting. But yeah, uh if you if you've never if you were if you wanted to see the move see the movie, uh if you wanted to see like a film version of what that play was about, Equus, yeah, came out in nineteen seventy seven. That's the thing it God, so many movies I need to check out. After that, uh once again seventy nine rounds it out with an adaptation of Sylvia Plath's The Bell Jar. Which is about a young woman who goes to New York to live the good life, working for a fashion magazine. Pressure gets to her, and she has a nervous breakdown and returns home. That's an interesting plot point. <laughs> Don't need to see the film now. You know exactly what happens. But yeah, that, I remember hearing about the bell jar, too. That was one of those things that you hear heard about in intellectual circles. Sylvia Plath, especially. But yeah, then nothing really major comes out for mental health and emotional breakdowns and things of that nature until the 90s. Jacob's Ladder is about a guy with PTSD. Three in 1991 with The Fisher King, about a guy, a radio shock jock, who has to deal with his fa- deal with the aftermath of fans of his being disturbed and taking it out on other people. Prince of Tides, which I'm guessing probably doesn't depict mental health too well. I mean, that's the Guy Ritchie one where he is on screen with Madonna. Or something where he directs Madonna. <laughs> I'm guessing that one's probably not exactly the most accurate depiction of mental health. Silent and then Silence of the Lambs. Mental health. I mean, you want. I mean, psycho. I mean, uh, yeah, the the first major. Well, I mean, I guess Manhunter would also be on here because yeah, everything dealing with Hannibal Lecter would be a, depicting somebody with mental health because the, the, every one of those. You know, iterations of Hannibal Lecter is has him as a, as a psychiatrist, and and has you know talks about mental health, and I can't say how accurate they are. I mean, <laughs> Silence of the Lambs brought us Buffalo Bill, and they it's more shock value than actual like diag- You can't really diagnose Buffalo Bill. That's more of like a shock value thing. But yeah, but all throughout the nineties too, Benny and June, one of the breakout roles for Johnny Depp. That features the girl who has a lot of emotional disabilities, and it's about how the brother feels about this weirdo guy hanging out with her and and dating her, and if she's going to be okay, if this guy is going to be able to take care of her. Then three again in 1995, 12 Monkeys, Brad Pitt's character is emotionally dis- emotionally dis- emotionally disturbed until the- to the point that he's an anarchist, and he wants to bring down... And he wants to bring down society. Dangerous Minds features a woman with... Pe- uh, features an army veteran or military veteran. I forget which branch. I don't know if they said which branch. 
Yeah, just military veteran. So apparently Michelle Pfeiffer was the military was a vet in that movie. But yeah, Dangerous Minds. A vet goes into the inner city and she has kids with different behavioral disorders and disabilities. And then this and then Brad Pitt returns again in the, in 1995 with Seven, which features Kevin Spacey as and as this really emotionally I mean that's the thing. When it comes to d- depicting emotional and behavioral disorder in film, it's usually about people with a psychosis, and it's a, usually it's a criminal aspect of it. I mean, I mean, Psycho, Clockwork Orange, Taxi Driver, Silence of the Lambs, Seven. It's so many of these movies don't really go into like functioning pe- people functioning with their disability it's a lot of times hollywood is quick to go to emotionally disturbed guy like that's another one that i feel like they've neglected like primal fear was what it was called it was a richard gear and edward norton movie about a lawyer who help, tries to get off, a guy off because of the insanity plea and I feel like because of the twist of that movie, it's probably why it's not depicted. But at the same time, you could say he's, you know, he's, he, has an, he has a behavioral disorder. But anyway. So that's another one that came out of the 90s, Primal Fear. Shine was something I've heard about in passing. A concert pianist becomes disconnected and exhibits irrational behavior due to his father's abuse and cruel training methods. And I remember that from Family Guy more than anything else. But I remember but I remember hearing about it. So it was essentially big enough. I mean if it's I mean as niche as Family Guy usually goes, Shine was something that's been around for a while and people and people who especially people who follow like Oscar Beatty films, those are the ones that usually remember stuff like Shine. But yeah, Jack Nicholson returns to the list for as good as it gets where he is, you know, has some sort of emotional disorder and he's held up solitary in his on his own and then next year 98 pi is about a guy who goes through a mental breakdown after what was it tried trying to use equations to predict the stock market okay that's right so he goes through a mental breakdown and thinks people are out to get him after he tries to play the stock market analyze this is about a psychiatrist girl interrupted 1999 same year it's about women in a mental health institution. Me, myself, and Irene. Probably a more insulting <laughs> depiction of mental health on screen. And, par- and part and parcel of the downfall of Jim Carrey. American Psycho. Different Psycho, but yeah, this, this seems to be a constant. You can f- probably find something every year since, you know, since the 90s depicting somebody with some kind of emotional or behavioral disorder. So you got American Psycho about a sociopath in, in 2000. Two in, a, two in a one, A Beautiful Mind about somebody with schizophrenia. Although I hear from people in the mental health profession that that one isn't as accurate to either his life, either the guy's life, or to having schizophrenia. But, you know, so I, with a lot of these, it's best to talk to somebody who's in that field to find out the veracity of... What the how the movie depicts it, but K Pax is another one, one about a guy who is in a mental health institution, and he thinks he's from another planet. That's another one that usually shows up every so often. Like The Martian Child was one about a kid who th- about a guy who is raising a kid who thinks he's from Mars, 
and then like oh two, but the next year, Antoine Fisher is about a Navy vet who goes on a, who has an emotional breakdown. Punch Drunk Love was a Paul W S Anderson movie starring Adam Sandler about Adam Sandler in the two thousands had a lot of movies like he was also in Anger Management the next year. So there's a lot. Adam Sandler was in a bunch of stuff that has to deal with mental health in that time period. I think that was when he was trying to be serious and then nobody took him seriously and now he's making garbage for Netflix. The Aviator in 04 for uh, the adaptation of Howard Hughes who had a lot of emotional issues. I haven't seen that one. I can't tell. I can't talk about the veracity of that biopic either. But then that same year you had Christian Bale in The Machinist. About a guy who suffers from insomnia, and and that was the one where he was like real thin, and it he and it was Christian Bale going method to play this character who loses all this weight and starts to lose his tut his grasp of reality. That same year, The Secret Window with Johnny Depp was an adaptation of a Stephen King book, or it may have been a short story. It was something by Stephen King about a guy about a writer who starts to lose his grasp of reality. 05, The Jacket. That was Adrian Brody, I believe, of about a vet who loses his touch with reality, too. Veteran of the Gulf War, falsely accused of murder, sent to a psychiatric hospital. And... and this continue- Lars and the Real Girl was Ryan Gosling, I believe, playing a guy who falls in love with a doll. After an emotional break, you know, have an emotional breakdown. Number 23, Jim Carrey again. Rain Over Me. Adam Sandler again. The Soloist. Uh, the Soloist was one of those really heart-stringy ones, pun intended, for Robert Downey Jr., post-Iron Man, kind of getting back up on his feet in a role with Jamie Foxx as a homeless cellist. And Robert Downey Jr., and it's... It's mostly from Ronald Downey Jr.'s point of view, and he's trying to save the cellist, and it's very stereotypical of that sort of thing. Shutter Island takes place, you know, has has a lot to do with uh, mental health. And then Silver Linings Playbook won a bunch of Oscars, and was, or at least was nominated. I don't know how many have won. But yeah, everybody is emotionally disturbed. Like People have bipolar disorder in that movie. And then Birdman, the guy has a mental breakdown. So the mental breakdown is usually the go-to for Hollywood. That seems to be the big one that they love talking about. Probably because it's the easiest to depict. As we go on, we got health, you know, the health deterioration. And that, that one is pretty light. First one, Pride of the Yankees, 1942, about Lou Gehrig. And, you know, Lou Gehrig of Lou Gehrig's disease, which is a different way of describing ALS. The ALS Ice Bucket Challenge was to help people with Lou Gehrig's disease. That they're the part they're the same thing. It's the, it's what uh, Stephen Hawking has. He's managed to live with that for decades now. Long, long after most people mo- like long. Wow. Give it up to that guy. That's just I wouldn't be surprised if Stephen Hawking doesn't die. He just evolves into like a sentient cloud of hydrogen or something, you know? That's just me. Uh, After Pride of the Yankees, the first next major one is Midnight Cowboy in 1969, the first X-rated movie to be nominated for an Oscar because it deals with prostitution and it's all, but 
Dustin Hoffman's character is suffering from a, suffering from debilitating health in that movie. Apparently, I never. That's why I included it. I haven't seen that. God, I am terrible at not seeing all these movies. Love Story. Year after that, nineteen seventy was about a woman. It's it's your standard man, your guy meets girl sort of love love story. I mean, they call it love story. It's it's kind of the template, especially since it also inclu- also has the girl developing cancer, I believe. So it definitely is part is kind of the template love story. Let's see, because I mean, me before you, the movie that's kind of started off this discussion kind of follows a lot of the same stuff as Love Story, I'm guessing. Anyway, skip ahead to 85 with Mask, Rocky Dennis. And that one is not only debilitating health, blindness, physical deformity. I, I don't remember, and plus, I, yeah, the, yeah the, his lover was blind, I believe. The, the kid's girlfriend. But yeah. I, I, most of the times you see a reference to Rocky Dennis because of his deformity, but that movie dealt a lot with that, you know, di, you know, having disabilities. And I can't say how good it is. Like, I don't know if it's a good movie. I don't know if it's, like, cheesy and hokey, if the interpretations are very, you know, insulting. I couldn't tell you. I haven't, I've only seen it in past, you know, I've only seen clips of it and heard people talking about it. Another TV movie, 1999, Tuesdays with Maury. And I feel like that one was kind of the go-to debilitating health movie. You know, the one that kind of, another one that kind of set a template, the way that Sybil did with dissociative identity disorder. Tuesdays with Maury is kind of one of those iconic, you know, sad, dying, like debilitating health stories. And after that is... A movie that I've seen... It's based on a play. I've seen the play being produced. Like, I saw that it was being produced by different area theaters near me. But Proof, starring Gwyneth Paltrow in 05, was about... Um, two sisters struggle to come to grips with their own lives and the death of their father, a nationally recognized math professor with Alzheimer's. One of the sisters fears that she may have inherited her father's disease along with his talent with numbers. So, I remember... You know, hearing about that and seeing like stills from a production of Proof, but yeah, that was all. So that came out in '05. That was Gwyneth Paltrow, and it was so it was you know one of the, one of the kind of tragic movies about Alzheimer's and how you know you and, the, and how your health deteriorates over time with it. Going along, uh, Dallas Buyers. We there was a whole bunch in the last couple of years. Dallas Buyers Club. About the guy in da- about the guy who develops AIDS and starts a whole thing to help the people with AIDS and becomes kind of a comes part of the gay community, uh, uh, almost un you know uh, you know kind of unwittingly by trying to help treat his own AIDS, by trying to help treat AIDS for himself. He realizes just how much crap the gay community gets for having you know while they're suffering from this disease. I really liked Dallas Buyers Club. I, I should probably look into how, how that how much that correlates with its act, with actual life. But next year, two thousand fourteen, still Alice, the movie that finally won Julianne Moore her Oscar about a woman with Alzheimer's. 
And as she is going, and it focuses more on her instead of the people around her. And then that same year, The Fault in Our Stars, two patient, two kids with cancer fall in love. I really liked The Fault in Our Stars. It wasn't perfect, but I feel like it was a nice story. I feel like, I feel like it was really good of John Green to kind of want to tell this story. And from what he hear, it's based on a girl that he knew, that was a fan of his videos and that, and how he met her and how she changed his life and she, and he wanting to kind of tell the, tell her story as a, as a, as a, as it were. And then, and then last year, no, that was also 2014. Yeah. 2014 again, the theory of everything about Stephen Hawking and specifically about him developing, uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS. And I really commend Eddie Redmayne for what he put himself through. I mean, it's not the same as somebody who's actually going through ALS, but I feel like he was able to straddle that thin line of accurate depiction of somebody going through this disorder while also being respectful. Like, he wasn't being insulting, I believe. Like, I never thought of him as insulting when he was playing Stephen Hawking before the robot voice. So I really commend him for that. I'm glad he won for that. I haven't seen the Danish girl. That's he, I gotta say Eddie Redmayne has been on a roll with picking except for Jupiter ascending, but he couldn't have popped that. Anyway, developmental disabilities after this. Now, uh, the first one, 1939 of mice and men. That kind of is the go-to for uh, adults with development adults with uh, developmental disabilities. That this that one you know of mice Lenny from of lice of mice and men, and then of course Boo not Boo Radley, yeah Boo Radley from To Kill a Mockingbird. Both those are the two big ones here, and those are kind of the go-to sort of depictions of of developmental disabilities and. You know, that sort of mind of an ch- adult with the mind of a child sort of thing. Uh, this one's pretty light. After that is Being... The next one, big one I got was Being There, which was the final movie of Peter Sellers, the actor who was in Dr. Strangelove and was best known for the Pink Panther. His final movie was playing a guy with a developmental disability. And I've seen it... I When I, when I worked in Hollywood video, I would always pass by it, but I never got the chance to see it. I never took the chance to see it. So I that's something I feel like I need to go back to. But yeah, Peter Sellers plays the main character who is a developmentally disabled gardener. And that seems to be a go-to. We'll talk about that with learning disabilities down the line. But yeah, after that, one of the breakout roles for Leonardo DiCaprio, What's Eating Gilbert Grape? About a young child with a developmental disability. And quite honestly, one of the best depictions of that sort of like like Leo and what's eating Gilbert grape was accurate and honest like it was never Leo never got insulting and stereotypical the way that you could easily do and that comes across later down the line on the list where I'll get into it with like other sister and I am Sam but it never Leo is so genuine in his performance and really captures somebody like that. And I feel like, you know, things like that with, like, 
Leo in this movie and Eddie Redmayne in The Theory of Everything, it's really, it feels really good. It's, it sucks that you can't give those kind of roles to somebody who already has those issues, already has those disorders or has those disabilities. Like, it, it's all, it would be awesome to cast somebody with ALS as Stephen Hawking. But what sucks is you can't, somebody with the disability can't go through and depict the, the pain of going through the disability. Or you can't, it's hard to get somebody with a developmental disability to perform the character, to act as the character. You're, you, it's more stunt casting. And and yet, at the same time, you don't want to go down the route of going along the line. Forrest Gump, where Tom Hanks plays a, you know, it it's charming. He's charming. I'm not going to say he's insulting, but at the same time, it's Forrest Gump is very has become way more divisive than I ever thought it would because there's this contingent of people online. Who are who feel like Forrest Gump is kind of cheesy and you know and but at the but and like like almost insulting the way it depicts somebody with a developmental disability the way Tom Hanks portrays the Forrest Gump. My name is Forrest Gump. You can call me Forrest Gump. And you know that sort of like it. That one I feel like it's it's very weird how it straddles that line of realistic. And insulting. Like, you never want to... Because that's such a fine line when you're portraying somebody with a disability. You want to be realistic and honest to what they're... What they live. What their life is like. But you never want to depict them as a joke or as, you know, something lesser. So I feel like Forrest Gump is divisive in that sense. Because a lot of times Forrest is kind of the butt of the joke. And I feel like there's a lot of issues with that. Sling Blade, you know, one in 1996, just a couple years later, Sling Blade comes out probably on the heels of Forrest Gump because oh, Forrest Gump did so well. Let's do let's let's do our own. You know, and, and it's Billy Bob Norton talking like this. And it's 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 kind of I, that's another one I haven't seen. I remember I remember that was also a movie that tackled homosexuality because T- John Ritter's character, the supporting character, was gay in the movie. And it comes out as gay to Sling Blade. And I've looked to see that. I, it's a movie I've seen clips of, but I've never seen the whole thing. So I can't really comment on how it works as a whole. But then later that later that decade, Desbury head into the millennium, the other sister starring Juliette Lewis as a woman who is... Mentally disabled, you know, who has a very develop, you know, is developmentally disabled to the point where she has the mind of like I forget what the, yeah, let me pull it up. Oh, okay, that that feels a, I feel a lot better about the, the, when they describe it like this. I guess wishing to be more independent and to escape her overprotective mother. A woman who has a mental disability rents an apartment of her own and falls in love with a man who also has a developmental disability. Maybe it's not as bad as I've heard. Because I've heard people mock the movie and be like, oh, look at Juliette Lewis playing the retarded girl. 
that was my that was how I heard it go, growing up. So I may have to go back and see how she part how she portrays that character and how how you know especially if because that's the thing the other sister makes it sound like she's the supporting character not the main character too so i feel like that was one of my issues was like oh it's about it's it's about how the able-bodied per, able-minded person is able to has ha, has to take care of the developmentally disabled person it's not about advocacy or anything like that that's a big because that's the big issue especially now with autism and i'm guessing with a lot of the communities that 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 uh, that a lot of the community a lot of the disabled a lot of the communities for people with disabilities one of the big things that always goes on is advocacy and you know being able to you know you know people don't want to be taken care of they want to be able to you know take do things for their own and i feel like that i feel like that's a better when you can do that on film it's a lot better than just oh let me, you know, somebody taking care of, you know, it's all about the, oh, it sucks that we have to take care of this disabled person. It's more, I feel like it's more compelling to, to tackle the, uh, the, to tackle disability from an, a, from an aspect of advocacy rather than just, oh, it, it's terrible. And because it's, yeah, for, it does suck for the people who have to, who, for the people who, take care of a lot of the people who are disabled and especially if they're very low functioning disabled the you know the nurses and the parents and the and god there's so much stigma involved in that and that as well just there's still such a big stigma with disability in this country and probably and the rest of the world let's be honest because yeah <laughs> i mean if you think we're bad you should see the rest of the world because with with so much of the rest of the world being homogenized, they you know when when something's bad in a community, then it's way more prominent in a homogenized country in homogenized countries that you have in the rest of the world. Whereas America is so eclectic that a lot of the issues seem to be watered down to the you know where you can still see the terribleness and of things like racism and the treatment of people of the disabled. But when you see, but then when you go look at other countries and see how like some people with albino albinism, people who you know people in Africa are, who are albino are treated as witches and killed so that their bones can be used in some voodoo ritual. I mean that's not a stereotype. That's a thing that happens in the news. You know people are arrested in those countries because of that sort of you know because of that sort of mentality and. The, and so there's this, and so to so when you so it's nice to s- focus more on the advocacy. I, uh, how do they get on albinos in Africa from? Oh, from from the treatment of the disabled in other countries as as opposed to America. How do they get to that from advocacy? Oh yeah, because I got I went off on a tangent about how the disabled are thought of and treated in film and in the country as a whole, and that it's also worse around the world depending on where you go. Anyway, I am Sam. Two thousand one was kind of that. I mean, I am Sam is the butt of the joke for Tropic Thunder. You never go full retard. You know, I am Sam. Sean Penn went full retard. 
And, I, and as much as that's a joke, God, that is so true. Hollywood never wants to be too realistic and on the nose. They want to have just enough little sparkle and fantasy added to it to make it look a to make it look like it's okay to have a dis, you know it's it's fantasy disability they never want to talk about the harsh realities of anything so i don't know how bad i am sam is i remember hearing negative reviews about sean penn's uh, performance of a somebody with a, of somebody with developmental disability uh it it's about him trying to win a legal battle again to gain custody of his daughter but I don't know how bad it is. I, I just heard negative criticism about Sean Penn's performance. So I, that's one I'd have to go back and see. And then the last real big one to deal with developmental disorders and disabilities on a major, in a major way was The Ringer in 05. Starring Johnny Knoxville t- pretending to be handy, you know, mentally handicapped to join the Special Olympics. That one was just, that one was, that one has trigger warnings just from the premise alone, because, whoo boy. But at the same time, it also featured a cast of people with developmental disabilities, so so it's not like, it's, so at the same time, it's not like having actors pretend to be disabled, it is casting people with disabilities, so at least it did something right. It's still a terrible premise, though. Never saw it. Oddly enough, the latest it seems, the latest thing I've seen here for disabilities on film, summer school, the late, the first time dyslexia and learning disability was depicted in film. 1987. So autism got depicted in film before any sort of learning disability. And the first one to be depicted was dyslexia in a raunchy 80s comedy. That's, I mean, that's just kind of... Because you think about it. You've got developmentally disabled first time of Mice and Men. Met, um, emotionally dis, emotional disability first time 1930s with something nobody's ever heard of. Autism first time 1979 in a TV movie. Any kind of learning disability, dyslexia being the first one to be depicted... 1987. Nobody talked about it before then. Or if they did, Iris forgot to list them. So, but then the other learning disabilities that show up are, the other movies that talk about it are Lawnmower Man. Once again, kind of like being there, the developmentally disabled, and the, or in this case, the learning, somebody with a learning disability, they're gardeners. I guess that what they're saying. I guess that's the thing in Hollywood is when is that uh, is that um you know an idiot can be a gardener, and I feel like that's kind of insulting. But at the same time, I don't know how true to life that is. How many people do have gardeners with developmentally developmental disabilities? So for some reason, Iris also included dumb and dumber in the learning disability category. But I feel like that's almost insulting because it's like trying to officially diagnose a idiot character. Like, how do you how do you psych- psychologically diagnose SpongeBob or Ren and Stimpy? Like, almost cartoonish characters. So to say that they have learning disabilities instead of are just plain idiots, I don't know. 
because I don't think they ever really say that they have learning disabilities. They're just they're just morons. I don't know. I guess that's the thing is that idiots and morons have all we're all kind of all kind of have their history in insulting the people who are learn you know people who do have developmental disabilities. Like an idiot was a term used for people who were who were in the mental hospital. So, eh. Yeah, a little, little grammar history in this movie discussion podcast. After Dumb and Dumber Phenomenon, where John Travolta goes from a learning disability, from somebody with a learning disability to a genius because of aliens or something. Really weird. And then, like, I think the best one for somebody with a learning disability that I saw on Iris's whole list was something called The Mighty from 1998, which is an adaptation of the book Freak the Mighty. And it's about a kid who is, it's about this kid with something called Morkio syndrome, which it's kind of, it's, I'm not quite sure I quite understand it. Morkio syndrome referred to as mucopolysaccharidosis. And it means you can't process certain types of mucopolysaccharides or glycosaminoglycan. Which are, which are, which are types of sugars? I'm guessing. But this is real high level stuff, and I don't know how much of that they go into the movie about it because it looks like a kids' movie, honestly. So I don't know how much they're gonna go into the aspects of Morkio syndrome, but abnormal heart development, skeletal development, hyper hypermobile joints, large fingers, knock knees, widely spaced teeth. Bell-shaped chest, flared ribs, compression of spinal cord, enlarged heart, dwarfism, heart murmur. So yeah, there's this kid who gets diagnosed with Morkio syndrome at an early age, and then meets another kid who has a developmental disability and is kind of the kind of the big dumb stereotype guy. So he's kind of like another like a kid version of Lenny, it sounds like. But it sounds like a more like a more compassionate and more thoughtful interpretation of that sort of disability, rather than the sort of where whereas Lenny often comes off as a stereotype, in in terms of mice and men. But so yeah, that seems to be the best, and yeah, they Iris hasn't found anything else apparently about the learning disabilities on film. At least nothing they've listed. And they've, I mean, they go into detail for like all kinds of independent stuff and all kinds of like minute characters that are in the background. So it's, it's odd that there's so little about learning disabilities, but then maybe Hollywood doesn't want to talk about it for some reason. Anyway, next up, physical impairment. Earliest one. That one first showed up in 1924 because Captain Hook from Peter Pan counts because he's got a hook for a hand. So that was the earliest depiction of a physical impairment, followed up by Moby Dick in 1930 because Captain Ahab has a peg leg. That seems to be the go-to for Iris's list, is people with hooks, people with missing limbs, and that sort of thing. Uh, Freaks, 1932, probably the most... Because that's the thing, Freaks, if you haven't seen it, stars an actual cast of carnival freaks. 
people with all kinds of physical impairments and disorders stars a stars a little person who falls in love with a trapezer, I believe, or you know somebody, you know, a beautiful circus worker, and he's part of the freak show, and the freak, you know, that was, freaks was the one that that was famous for one of us, one of us. Google gobble, Google gobble, one of us, one of us. And it's it's treated as a horror movie, but at the same time, it's nice that all these different people who had to work at a carnival freak show are able to, you know, be are able to work on film, even if it is just in a fictional form of a freak show. But that was the mo like that was the biggest use of people of a cast with disabilities that I've Really, like you don't really see that because a lot of because because a lot of times I'm guessing it's for the actor's sake. They don't want to feel they don't want the actor to feel like they're being exploited. And going down the list, uh, wait, why was a Christmas Carol? Oh, Tiny Tim, yeah, Tiny Tim. So every iteration of a Christmas Carol, Treasure Island, Hunchback. Every iteration of a Hunchback to, of Notre Dame, and a fair to remember, I believe. What was a fair to remember? That was one of those romance movies. During an ocean cruise from Europe to New York, two people fall in love. One is already each is engaged to another. Meet in six months atop the Empire State Building, and the woman loses her legs. Once once again, couple couple meet. You know, there's the meet cute. They fall in love, and then somebody has a, has a medical problem. That's it. It that that's the Nicholas Sparks setup. That Nicholas Sparks is borrowing from every romance movie before him, apparently. Porgy and Bess, which you never hear about. It's a Gershwin opera starring two black, starring, starring mostly a black cast. And apparently Porgy is, has some kind of physical disability. They never really go long, go into what he has. But apparently, but apparently that's, that's part of the story. At this, it's, you know, so it's interesting that they never really, you never really see poor D and Bess play. Not a lot of Gershwin has played, period, but you never really see, I mean, poor G and Bess is a black, you know, it's a black cast, it features a guy who has a, who has a physical disability. You'd think it would be perfect for to this day and age, but maybe, I don't know, maybe the film, maybe because it was written by a white guy, it's not as a flattering depiction of black culture especially since it was like the 30s, I think, when Gershwin wrote it. Going down the list, Dr. No had a, had a, had a, like, like, what, 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 like prosthetic hands. Whatever happened to Baby Jane had, uh, I believe it was Joan Crawford's character was in a wheelchair and had to be cared for by her sister, played by Betty Davis, and they're two jealous old actresses who didn't like, you know, Betty Davis was jealous of the fact that Joe Crawford got the attention afterwards. And it was about their, you know, dispute. And their, it, I really liked Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. It's creepy as all get out, especially Betty Davis. Betty Davis looks like a monstrosity in that film. But I, but it was, I definitely recommend it if you get the chance. Dr. Strangelove, he's in a wheelchair. The Other Side of the Mountain was one I liked because... It, it was one of the ones that when I saw, when I read through it, it lo- you know, it wasn't just, oh, somebody's missing an eye. Oh, somebody's da-da-da. It's another iteration of, tre- of Treasure Island. But 
One, the other side of the mountain is about is a biopic about a women, a female uh, skier who gets paralyzed before she can go to the Winter Olympics, and her coming to you know her develop you know how she how she how she deals with that change in her life, and I don't know how how it depicts. The, her her going paralyzed so I don't know how you know if it's a good movie but it sounded like you know it, it was at least dealing with somebody where the person the main character had the disability whereas it's not somebody in the background uh, going on down the list a whole bunch of stuff in the 80s The Elephant Man directed by David wow David Lynch yeah David Lynch dire- director of well wait David Lynch, creator of Twin Peaks. Yeah, I think that was a big one. Twin Peaks. Yeah, he directed The Elephant Man, which is about, you know, it was based somewhat loosely on the true life story of a guy who did have this sort of physical deformity and had, I think it was gigantism. And it, I, if you haven't seen uh, The Elephant Man, it's very, very good. And, and, I think it's Anthony Hop. No, John Hurt plays the titular Elephant Man, and he acts through all co- all you know. There's these amazing, this this just um, you know, just these heavy prosthetics to make him look like the guy. Because you couldn't cast somebody like this. I don't. You'd have to search through all kinds of developing countries to find somebody who looked like this guy. The way he had gigantism, you can't really cast cast for that but the way John Hurt plays him I'm not an animal I mean it's I think it's it you know he that I think he does a good job of being of not it, while it's been parodied since then the original performance is not insulting it's very much along the lines of what I've been saying about advocacy for the disabled uh, going down, continuing down the list. Dead Zone walks with a cane. Just the way you are is a romantic comedy about a woman with a with a lame leg. Mac and me, the E.T. knockoff, funded by McDonald's, featured a kid in a wheelchair as the lead. That's a thing that happened. Yes, same year. Monkey shines about a paralyzed man with a. Killer Monkey as an assistant. That is also a thing that happened. Check out How Did This Get Made for Monkey Shines. Born on the 4th of July. Same year as My Left Foot. Both movies depicting people with disability. Well, having to come to terms with their disability in the one set... In, the, in a Born on the 4th of July's case, it's a veteran who returns from Vietnam paraplegic where he loses his lower lip, where he loses the, either the use or he has, or his legs have to be amputated and how he's gone from a soldier to a pro to protesting the war. And I've heard great things about born on the 4th of July. So I, I still need, I still need to see that one. Same year, my left foot about Christy Brown, quadriplegic who received speech therapy from a woman with whom he later falls in love. Helps Christie become an acclaimed writer, poet, and artist, all of which he accomplishes 
through the use of his sole functioning limb, his left foot. That one was a big one. And that one was Daniel Day-Lewis going completely method as he does. That's another one I still need to see. But yet, going down the list. Edward Scissorhands. Kind of a fake disability, but hey, scissors for hands is technically a physical disability. The Bruce Lee story. Apparently, Bruce Lee had to overcome physical uh, early disability before he became best known for the true master of martial arts. Uh, Ethan Frome, husband falls in love with a living. Oh yeah, that was a that was one that really stuck out to me. Uh, yeah, husband falls in love with the living nurse for his disabled wife. So I don't. I feel like. While it doesn't focus on the disability as much as the people around the per- the disabled person, it sounded like something you know this uh, an interesting and compelling story to me, having never heard of it. Uh, big one for ninety six Oscars, the English Patient, and that one was about a, a paralyzed man who tells these fanciful stories to a little girl who has some kind of health issue. I forget what it was. Severely burned and paralyzed, tells his nurse about his life and affair he had during World War II. That's what it was. I'm thinking of something else that did that. Something by Tarsum Singh. I forget what, though. Uh, uh, People versus Larry Flint, about the founder of Hustler, who became paralyzed. I believe, was it after a gunshot? How did People versus Larry Flint, adult publishing man, who was shot and paralyzed from the waist down. Larry, kick, Larry Flint, still kicking, still in the wheelchair, still pushing out them Hustler magazines. So, hey, he, good for him. That was in the 70s when that all started. 97 was a big one about disability. Gattaca, fiction, set in a fictional universe about a future where people, it's, it's not euthanasia, it's, um, what's it called? Where it's genetic modifying to have perfect children. And nobody has a natural birth anymore because then your child is at a disadvantage. And it's about overcoming the overcoming adversity because you are not as because you're not genetically fit. It, there's a term for God, what, not euthanasia, but what is it? Um, eugenics. I knew it was you. It was you something, but yeah, eugenics. So it's a world where people design their children, and one mom decides to have a natural birth, and the kid is left at a disadvantage. And he has to overcome that, and he decides to, in order to achieve his dream of going into space, breaks through the system because, kind of sneaks his way through the system due to, due to, with the help of Jude Law, who is in a wheelchair and disabled. So he uses Jude Law's identity to kind of go, to be able to go into space and overcome the body, you know, be, overcome the, the, come the, overcome society's, society's thought that he cannot do anything because he's a natural born person. He wasn't genetically made perfect. Really interesting movie. I really recommend you see Gattaca if you get the chance. Wild Wild West, villain played by Kenneth Branagh is in a steampunk wheelchair. So yeah, that seems to be the go-to. This is, besides mental, besides the emotional disabilities and behavioral disorders in film they hollywood loves going for the physical impairments anything with a prosthesis i mean you got the fugitive in this same category 
X-Men, all of the X-Men, all of the iterations of the X-Men featured featured Charles Xavier in the wheelchair. Frito, uh, the biopic of the Mexican, I believe, artist of the same name, uh, apparently both, apparently she suffered through some physical disability early on and overcame that in order to pursue her art. Never saw the movie, don't know her story, but yeah, Million Dollar Baby, for those who've seen it. Happy Feet is a sort of fake disability, but the lead character does have a disability that sets him apart from the rest of his species. It's, it's, it, I guess it fits, but at the same time, it does, I feel like Gattaca does a much better job of dealing with that sort of, you know, it, of issue of being an other in the society than Happy Feet does. Happy Feet is very, I mean, God, there's a, there's a critic I follow, the guy who went on to write Sinister and, the, and Doctor Strange, who called Happy Feet, like, a big liberal, like, this, he went on this whole tirade of how Happy Feet is this big, whole liberal propaganda thing. Oof, I have to go back and find that. Uh, 300, same year as Happy Feet, features a hunchback. Yep. Same year, though, as both Happy Feet and 300 is The Diving Bell and The Butterfly. I've heard great things about this. It features Ben Kingsley as a man who is disabled, but is able to communicate through his eyes. Like, through the use of his eyes, is able to communicate to the world that he is still mentally functioning. Like, he's not dead, you know, he's not brain dead. I have to go back and see that one. I've heard nothing but good things about it. After that, Avatar in 09, nothing to do with the airbending, but it does feature a lead character in a wheelchair. So, I'll give the movie that. At least it featured somebody who is disabled as a main character. But, but you know, Avatar, I feel like Avatar was really blown out of proportion. It's not as great as a movie as the money would make it seem like. I feel like that was more of the spectacle, the 3D aspect, and the design work. But hey, you know, it's good that the movie did feature somebody with a disability in a, in a leading role. So there's that. And then the last real major one was Dolphin Tale in 2011, about a disabled dolphin. And it somehow got a sequel. Based on the true story of how a dolphin was rehabilitated, that got a fictional sequel about a second disabled dolphin. Soak that in for a bit. After the uh, shortest one, Speech Disorders. It's the only one that doesn't really... It, besides learning disabilities, Speech Disorders only have real, really three major films. The first one to depict Speech Disorders on film is a movie called Girl Shy. A shy man with a speech impairment falls in love with a woman who is about to marry a man who is already married. And that was 1924. So that was, wow, that was even earlier than that first. It, no, I think it was the same year as Peter Pan. Let me see. Same year as that silent Peter Pan movie. So, same year, you get, and I feel like there's, a, well, looking at the list, there's a lot in there that I left out. Like, Stalag 17 features a character in the background who has a prosthetic leg and somebody with a speech impediment. One Flew with a Cuckoo's Nest shows up on this one again. A Fish Called Wanda features a, features a thief with a speech impairment. 
Glory has a soldier with a speech impairment. One of the one of the people at their nightclub has a speech impairment. My cousin Vinny, the boy's court-appointed lawyer, has a speech impairment. So yeah, I mean that's that. I feel like I feel like it didn't leave a lot of what Iris listed because it never really dealt with the impairment. It was like somebody with a somebody with a lisp or or, or somebody who. Stuttered, you know. It's a, it's, it's a disability that's almost used as a joke, rather than to talk about it in the story or make it some. You know, it's, it's like something in the background, which is not something I wanted to use for the list. So I ended up with three: "Girls Shy" (1924). The piano is about a woman who is mute, falling in love with her gardener or like groundskeeper, by and being betrothed to somebody, and then. 2010, The King's Speech, about stuttering King George in World War One. So yeah, almost nothing of real substance. The, the villain in Die Hard of the Vengeance. The boy seems to have multiple personalities, one of which has a speech impairment for primal fear. Back to that. One person at the reunion explains that he had a speech impairment. Romain Michel's high school reunion. The Sixth Sense doesn't really talk about where the speech impediment Speech impairment comes up. The brother of one suspect is deaf. So he so when he speaks, he has a speech impairment. So yeah, not a whole lot in terms of speech impairment on film. The big one is the King speech. Other than that, nobody really talks about having an impairment on film. At least at least in terms of speech. Real interesting when you think about it. Uh nineteen forty for this next category. Traumatic brain injury. Unfortunately, this category deals with amnesia. So I had to cut out all of the crap and and ended up with the first one on film, The Great Dictator. Doesn't really say how he... I guess the traumatic brain injury comes in when he is mistaken for a dictator and he has amnesia? Because that's the thing, a whole bunch of these. Muppets Take Manhattan, Kermit has amnesia. The Majestic, Jim Carrey, girl has, Jim Carrey gets knocked in the head and has amnesia. You know, it's a lot of that sort of thing going on in this category. But I did, you know, search through Goonies. The bad guys have disabilities, not only do the bad guys have disabilities, but there's also um, the big guy. Crap, what's his name? I never saw Goonies. Goonies was before my time. But yeah, that the big guy, uh, sloth, sloth in the Goonies has a physical disability, and in, and then the I think they're they're also talking about him. So there's the physical disability, the men, the intellectual, developmental disability, and then he also has a speech impediment. Huge love chunk. That's what I remember of it. I never saw the movie. I I'm only knowing about this in passing. But yeah, Memento. He has a brain injury where he can't remember anything. He has the tattoo. Born Identity, the whole Born series, has to deal with somebody with amnesia. 51st Dates is probably the one time I've seen Adam Sandler back on the list. But this time, it's about a woman who forget, who has terrible, who, who has no, um, what's it called? Um, short-term memory. So she, she meets Adam Sandler, and Adam Sandler has to keep, you know, 
it, you know, try to try to keep her remembering who he is because she can't remember anything past a certain point. And if I remember that not being terrible, like it wasn't, uh, it was, it was like, it wasn't, it was like, like from the premise, oh, a, a man falls in love with somebody with short-term memory loss and she has, and she, and she, and he has to keep going on the first dates with her. So the premise can sound, may sound a bit insulting. It could go terribly wrong. But from what I remember, 51st Dates handled it in a very meaning, like it wasn't an insulting way of de- of depicting that disability. In 2007, this one appeared a bunch. The Lookout stars Joseph Gordon-Levitt as, who suffers from a brain injury and has memory loss issues and gets involved with the local crime lord played by Jeff Daniels. And I remember that I've seen that one. I remember it being a decent movie, not like something to write home about, not like something like, Oh my God, you have to see this movie. It's so amazing. But it given the subject matter, I thought it, you know, handled everything fairly well. And for anti-retrograde amnesia, and anger management issues. So, I I liked George, I think Joseph Gordon-Levitt did a great job. <laughs> plays plays the character of Chris Pratt. <laughs> That's funny, but yeah, I feel like The Lookout handled that in a meaning handled that in a respectful way, and I liked what the story I liked the story they told. Last one to feature traumatic brain injury. It was The Vow in 2012, Nicholas Sparks, I believe, and how a guy had to get the woman he loved to remember who he was or something. I don't remember. I never saw it. And then the last one, Visual Disability, or or to Hollywood, Blind People. So the first one, and I keep, I, I made this list last night and I keep surprising myself. Two came out. In 1921, about blind people. A man who is blind sets out to prove his son is innocent of murder. Footfalls by Fox. And two sisters, one of whom is blind, caught in the middle of the French Revolution's struggle to pick sides. Orphans of the Storm. So, two movies in 1921 depicting people with blindness. And then in 1931, City Lights. Where Charlie Chaplin falls in love with a blind woman. And honestly, since then, that's been a lot of people with, oh, funny, like people who have short sightedness and are blind. And, and it's like, going through the list, we've got Pride of the Marine. The heroic Marine loses his vision in battle. Uh, I've never heard of it. High Noon. One of the man who offers his assistance is blind. This woman is dangerous. A gangster fears he, she may be going blind, seeks the help of an ophthalmologist. The Hanging Tree, The Great Escape, one of the British soldiers develops severe visual problems. Barbarella, must convince a man without sight to fly again. So, I mean, it's like, it's either stuff that nobody would have ever heard of, or it's during, during Clash of the Titans, during his journey, he comes across three witches who are blind. Or, yeah, so it's stuff like that again. And then, and then date Rocky Dennis in Mask dates a girl who is blind. Huh. And then in Manhunter, the first iteration of 
Hannibal Lecter, directed by Michael Mann, uh, an FBI agent on like a serial killer strikes families at night, begins dating a woman who is blind. But yeah, so there's that. Last Temptation of Christ. Christ heals a blind man. The house musician in Roadhouse is blind. Blah, 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 blah. So it's a lot of that going on. And so what I was able to pick out of all of those sort of minor, like, oh, this features a blind person or is something nobody's ever heard of, goes all the way to 92 with Scent of a Woman, where Al Pacino wins an Oscar for playing a blind veteran, I believe. 92, Scent of a Woman. Veteran who is blind, yeah. So that's, and that wasn't Pacino's best performance by far, but it's one of those cases where he just, it's like a retro grade Oscar where it's that, where he had, where he gets it because of his work to that point. And then 97, Mr. Magoo from Disney starring Leslie Nielsen as the short-sighted cartoon character. Next year, Quest for Camelot featured a blind swordsman. Or at least it was something somebody heard of. Uh, 99 was something I don't think people had heard of. It's called Freak City. Showtime Network. So it sounds like a TV movie for Showtime. Institutionalized by her family because she has multiple sclerosis. A young woman makes friends with others in the institution, including a man who is blind and a woman who is deaf. So I think that's why I included it, because it was about people with multiple disabilities rather than just the one. So I don't know how that turned out, but it was... It sounded like an interesting premise, and I thought I would include it. Dancer in the Dark was probably the most known of all the independent stuff they included on Iris's list. But that one was by Lars von Trier, starring Björk. 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 However you pronounce her name. The chick who wore the swan to the Grammys that one year. She's an Icelandic artist, and she plays a woman who is slowly going blind. And it sounded like an interesting... And I don't know how well it depicted going blind and how I don't know how blind people would take to the movie and how it's being depicted. But yeah, that that one that one was probably the most prominent of Von Trier's work. And it's you know, it's something it features somebody with a disability, at least. I don't know how well it depicts it, but that was you know, that was the reason I included it. And then of course Daredevil in 03 which is, you know, it's, it's, it's like a comic booky blindness, so I don't know if that should count. But then Ray in 04, which I feel like probably, I feel, I feel like has a great depiction of blind, uh, of how Ray goes blind and how he deals with his blindness and the way he, like, I feel like Jamie Foxx, Jamie Foxx definitely deserved the Oscar for that performance. But yeah, then the last time, it, like, blindness was so prominent was was in 2010 with Book of Eli, where Denzel Washington plays a blind man going through a post-apocalypse with the Bible, and then it's just it's if stuff that I don't I don't think I've ever heard of like stuff I've never heard of before. Once Upon a Warrior from Disney, Perfect Sense from IFC, The Ship of Theseus by Riddhi Siddhi Films, so it's Indian. In two a Portuguese movie called Imagine. And so, so yeah. I, so, yeah, this Iris list isn't perfect, but it, it's definitely thorough, almost to a fault. 
And yeah, when it comes to depictions of disabilities on film, my only real thought is you really have to be honest to the disability people with a dis with that disability. You want to be able to be honest about what it is like to have that disability, but at the same time you want to be an advocate for them. You don't want to be like, oh, they are helpless without us, the able body, to be there. And I feel like that was the that was one of my issues with me before you. Was it was so terrible for his own advocate, like, he couldn't, like, God forbid this guy make his own life decisions, you know? And I feel like the, be- like, I feel that Hollywood is always going to glamorize the disability, no matter what. And they're always going to focus on, it's either going to be a joke, or it's, you always get those little ones, like Children of a Lesser God, The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, What's Eating Gilbert Grape. Fault in our, you know, Fault in Our Stars, Silver Linings Playbooks. Every so often, you will get those movies that really are are not only able to be honest about the disability and be honest in the portrayal of having that disability, but be able to be compelling beyond that, and to be able to show that the disability is not a disadvantage; it's just part of who they are. And they are able to not just overcome, but not even just live with it, but over, but be able to advocate for themselves and be who they are, despite what people may think. And I feel like there's still that stigma. And I mean, you see it in me before you, not only in the film itself, but in just the thought process behind the the book, the behind the story, is always rife with the kind of mentality that people have towards people with disabilities. And they're still going to be there. The only way to get it to stop is to call it out and to change people's minds. So this was a very serious discussion about disability in film. And I'm kind of glad I had it. I'm kind of glad I got to see how, you know, how some disabilities get more attention in Hollywood than others. And... It, you know, it was an interesting little research trip for me, and it was a nice little discussion I thought we had, because it, I, I don't know when the next time we're going to be able to talk about it is, because I don't know when the next time Hollywood is going to actually discuss having a disability on film is. You never know. A lot of those times, those little Oscar movies don't get announced until, like, months before they're about to show. And then even then, and even then, they're usually just shown in L.A. so they can get nominated and then never be heard from again. Anyway, that does it for this episode, so it's time for those plugs. If you're listening to Popcorn Junkie, you're most likely listening to us on SoundCloud. The home of Popcorn Junkie is SoundCloud, so if you want to follow the podcast there, go to soundcloud.com slash popcornjunkie, and you can follow all new episodes as they come out. Or if you, were, if you aren't on SoundCloud, hopefully you're listening to us on iTunes. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and get every new episode delivered to your iTunes. And if you want to help the podcast out, all you got to do is leave a five-star rating and review, and you can help me shoot up the iTunes charts. iTunes, the only the only way to pot, for podcasts to thrive on iTunes is to have those five-star rating and reviews. So if you want to screw it to Apple and put me up there, that sounds terrible. I should, probably shouldn't have said that. Either way, if you want to help the podcast out, leave a five-star rating and review on iTunes. 
Or if you want to help out monetarily, you can always donate to the podcast through Patreon. There are several tiers of rewards for people who donate through Patreon. And right now, the main goal of the Patreon is to get a secondary podcast going, make a better called Make a Better Movie, in which I take a look at movies like the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles remakes or Me Before You. What would I change about Me Before You to improve upon it? Those movies and more, including Age of Ultron, The Fantastic Four, Friday the 13th, and even lesser-known movies like The Last Witch Hunter and Seventh Son on Make a Better Movie, which is only possible through your donations on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash popcornjunkie, and you can support me with any amount per month there, and you get special rewards, including early releases for the podcast, as well as able as well as requests further down the line, and being able and being thanked on the podcast itself. Or if you'd want to just or if you can't help out monetarily, you can always follow the podcast on Facebook. Go to facebook.com slash popcornjunkie and you'll see me chomping on my popcorn, as well as get early insights into my thoughts on new movies as they come out as I'm leaving the theater from a new release. And you'll also get updates on the podcast itself. So if you want to follow the podcast, go to patreon.com. Go to facebook.com slash popcornjunkie and like the page. Or if you want to follow on Twitter, follow at cornjunkiepod and you get the Facebook feed transferred all the way over to Twitter. So if you can follow me on both flat, both platforms and then and, and help spread the word of Popcorn Junkie. Also, you uh, and if there's anything else you want to say about the podcast, critique critiques, you know, reviews, insight, you know, praises, whatever you want to tell me, just send it to popcornjunkiepodcast at gmail.com. Anything you want to tell me, I'll either read it for you, I'll either read it out on the air, or I'll answer it to you personally. Just send it to popcornjunkiepodcast at gmail.com. That about does it for this week. I'm John Bailey, and I'm not handicapped, I'm handicapable. The theme song for Popcorn Junkie is Funky Popcorn by The M. Look up Funky Popcorn by The M on SoundCloud.com for more of his music. Artwork for Popcorn Junkie provided by Nafio, N-A-F-Y-O. Look up nafio.deviantart.com for more of his art. see this all by myself.